P. Ramsey Jr., an award-winning musicologist, music historian, composer, and pianist, has published a new book called Who Hears Here? on Black Music, Pasts, and Present. It's a series of essays that document his search to understand America's black musical past and present and to find his own voice as an African-American writer in the field of musicology. It's published by the University of California Press and brings Dr. Guthrie P. Ramsey, Jr. to our show now. Welcome. Hello. Um, hasn't there been an enormous amount of writing about black music history over the years? What were you hoping to achieve with these essays? Well, you know, every generation has to find its own voice in relationship to uh, these materials. It's really true that uh, since the 19th century, uh, black music in America has been a uh, profoundly uh, fascinating uh, topic for writers uh, throughout the years. And I think one of the things that I've learned uh, in researching those writers is that each generation has its own take on things. Uh, they have their own uh, eyewitness accounts about things. So I, I guess I look at myself as just being uh, one person in a long line of writers interested in this topic. Well, these essays were written over a 25-year period, include historiography, ethnography, cultural criticism, musical analysis, and autobiography. But uh, from what you just said, I'm assuming your opinions oh. may have changed. May have changed. Oh, boy. I was using the wrong, wrong microphone. <laughs> That's why. I sound a lot better now, don't I? Of course you do. <laughs> uh, I'm assuming your opinions uh, have probably changed much over those 25 years, because the music surely has. Oh, you bet they, they've they changed. And uh, that was one of the uh, surprising things uh, that I learned in rereading some of these essays is that, uh, you know, when I was a, a younger writer, I would say certain things. And as I matured, I... Uh, you know, changed my mind about a couple of things and, you know, just wrote, I think, in a more uh, tempered <laughs> way. And then also uh, I was trying to reach uh, larger audiences uh, in the latter part of my career. So, yes, indeed, I, I look at, at writing as always an act of self-fashioning. So if you look at your own writing over a 30 year period, mm -hmm you're bound to see some changes. Didn't James Monroe Trotter establish himself as America's first African-American music historian with the publication of his book, Music and Some Highly Musical People, in 1878? I like yes, that, he, highly he, musical people. Yeah, and in fact, <laughs> and in fact, I don't know whether you have access to it, but that that... That book has a lot longer title. They used to have these long titles in, 19, in the 19th century. So that's just the first part of the title. It goes on and on and on. But yes, he was. He was a, uh, a uh, he had many careers. Uh, he was a postmaster, and uh, I believe he he uh, also served in the uh, armed forces. But uh, yeah, and he, fascinating. And he was the son of a slave owner. Indeed, indeed. He, one of the more fascinating figures in, in black music history. Didn't he say he wanted to chronicle the musical activities of African-Americans and instill in his people pride in those achievements? Yes, he did. He was uh, primarily uh, trying to write to, uh, I, would, I think it's safe to say, to a, a white audience, and he wanted to prove through uh, the musical gifts of black people that they were uh, unworthy of slavery and worthy of full citizenship. He wrote about the music of black military bands, didn't he? So was most of the music then based on European models, military band models? The music that James Monroe Trotter uh, focused on most in in that book because of his aims to uh, elevate you know black people in the uh, American consciousness was about the music that was most related to the Western art music uh, and 
because military bands were one of the most popular genres of of music of american music instrumental american music uh you know across the board he he would definitely want to pay attention to that that uh that sound and the musicians obviously had to learn how to read musical notations the european musical notations Yes, many, many did. And uh, some, you know, just uh, learned it, you know, by ear. Where does the concept of essentialism come into this discussion? Essentialism for me is the idea that people, uh, regardless of their, uh, you know, their backgrounds have uh, some kind of essence that one uh, can identify quantify and draw boundaries around. And uh, it's a a very powerful idea that has been used to both uh, argue for the uh, subjugation of black people, meaning they were fit to be slaves, in other words. And then there were other uh, people who would say that uh, black people are essentially and inherently uh, great uh, so anytime you start at- attaching essences to people, you, you are kind of uh, drawing the, 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 the boundaries for what's in and what's out. And I try to uh, come at that idea in the book and, and through the essays by talking about not so much essences, but through uh, culture. Well, hasn't it been rejected in today's academic climate as part of a, a cluster of racist ideologies? It can be. Yes, indeed. It can be. It can be considered that way. Has your mix of interests as a writer, musician, producer, record label head given you richer understanding of this musical history uh, than you might have if you just concentrated on one of those areas? Well, I, I don't want to claim that I have a greater insight than the next person, uh, just in, in spite of whatever experiences they may or may not have. But I'm hoping that I'm bringing all of those uh, uh, different identities and different interests into my my explanation of things. And I, I'm hoping that it my backgrounds, you know, combine to make it a unique and interesting perspective for people. Well, we're talking about a collection of essays here, but aren't you writing a history of African-American music from the slave era to the present called Soundproof, Black Music, Magic, and Racial Intimacies? Oh, yes, indeed. I'm uh, about six chapters in. (laughs) And that title, how much does that reveal about what you're thinking? I'm hoping enough to make people want to open the book, <laughs> first of all. But it's uh, the, the book has uh, sort of two threads that it's uh, uh, written along. The first is that uh, the music has performed a very specific uh, function in, uh, in African-American uh, communities, uh, particularly as a, a way to be identified as human um, in a context in which they were being treated as if they were not human tools. And the other uh, aspect of the uh, argument is that this same music has been the site of some of the most profound interracial uh, interactions um, uh, since it, it appeared uh, on the uh, during the Middle Passage on slave ships, and in the uh, intervening years, it's influenced m- the music all over the world. Absolutely, it's definitely a a, a global phenomenon. So, where should we begin in discussing black music with the development of slave culture? You know, you can think about uh, the history as being an amalgamation of of wherever the people who are participating in it uh, uh, came from. So certainly uh, the uh, music from West and Central Africa uh, was 
and has been extremely influential into the development and to into the ongoing you know creation of new genres in uh, um, in America. But you also have to look at the uh, the European uh, background of of what we call African American music because fundamentally some of it was what I call indigenized uh, from. Uh, European models. So, as you said, the slaves came from a number of different parts of Africa, and then there was also European models involved. Um, do we see it developing differently in, in different parts of the South as a result of where the slaves came from, or does it all wind up being mashed together? That's a, a great question because the music developed uh, differently where there was, was a high concentration of African-Americans in the population and where there was not, there was, a, you know, a different kind of uh, uh, development. Now, when that all started flattening out is when you started having uh recordings that could circulate and you didn't need a human body there you can put it on and, and everyone was hearing the same sounds no matter who was in the room Ken, in hearing some of the earlier i don't know how many of those songs survive um can we tell whether what part of africa the people who uh, produced them came from there are some studies where uh scholars have compared, uh, say, certain scale types and certain uh, song forms as being originated to a specific uh, language group on the other side of the ocean. And then, of course, there were a lot of people who stopped off in the Indies on their way to the South. Um, I don't know whether they picked up other things while they were there. Of course they did. Anytime you have two cultures in contact, two different cultures in contact, you're going to uh, yield a, a different result. And therefore, you have, uh, you know, a whole other development of black music throughout South America and and the Caribbean that, you know, some of them eventually through the uh, the waterways and, and trade routes uh, in the United States, uh, you know, these uh these these musics traveled, let's say, and uh, in a way, I think about the uh, the rivers and the, the maritime uh, circulating cultures as being the first internet, because <laughs> this is when you could get you know different ideas, different music, different people flowing in and out of local cultures. And uh, I suspect that uh, sometimes when somebody heard something from uh, a person from a different culture that was interesting, uh, it, a light bulb went off. Often it did. And, and, and it uh, enriched things. It, yeah, and it became a, uh, a kind of cultural conversation that, uh, you know, uh, we, we musical detectives like to, you know, think about often. So is that what we're talking about here to some degree, a cultural conversation? Absolutely. And not an essential one. My guest on today's London Lopez at Large is Guthrie P. Ramsey, Jr. His latest, latest work of uh, published work is Who Hears Here on Black Music Pasts and Present, published by the University of California Press. This is WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live at WBAI.org. Didn't Frederick Douglass tell his readers in 1845 to listen to spirituals because he wrote that within these songs of sorrow existed a strong indictment of chattel slavery? That was um, obviously while slavery was still in effect. Indeed. Um, many, many um social and cultural commentators throughout the 19th century and even up into the 21st century often use music as the crucible or the index to understand uh, to understand a culture. 
So was slave culture a major source of work songs and religious music for uh, the, the people involved? Uh, yes, indeed. And I think what, uh, it, what I think should be stressed here is that often when we say that uh, the, the culture of slavery in the United States produced X, Y, Z, it uh, could be misunderstood as saying that this may not have happened if it were not for these harsh circumstances or that this that kind of circumstance of being considered non-human is the only reason or the only context in which to understand this music. And what I'm hoping readers walk away with is another perspective is that people brought to the table their own humanity and it was that 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 humanity was the context for um for the music making and the hardships the 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 uh the brutalities were just one context but i love that question well thank you wasn't the uh first collection published in 1867 under the title Slave Songs of the United States. That was just two years after the end of the Civil War. Who uh, was the intended audience? The intended audience, for the, particularly for those writers, were other abolitionists because those were uh, uh, white Harvard-trained uh, writers who ventured to the South to learn more about the uh the musical cultures that that you know were uh, produced there and they believed if they could listen to those songs transcribe them write them down publish them which they did before you know before that book came out they published it published uh some of that music in um in magazines you know as a as a feature they believed that if people could hear these songs, if they could understand what they heard uh, in the song as a profound beauty, that this would be uh, a motivation to end slavery in the United States. The book had 136 spiritual and secular songs. Uh, would we recognize them today? Were they similar to what was to follow? Uh, some of those songs are actually still sung today, and they are arranged in different settings. And my my band has recorded uh, some of that some of that music, and even record and, and even in live settings, uh, reproduce some of it. Most of the performance practices are lost to history. We are left with these the sheet music, which is a. a a, transi- a, a transcription of what these uh, musicians thought they heard, and then put together with the uh, descriptions of the music, we get a kind of idea about what it sounded like, and some of it still holds true. And would I recognize any of those songs? I think A Motherless Child you would recognize, A Wade in the Water, um, uh, roll Jordan Roll. These are songs that are still uh, performed by uh, singing groups today. And this was music that was created at first in in the former slave states of the of the South um, by both men and women. Yes, they were uh, congregational singing, but you can't leave the North out because. Uh, Richard Allen, who was a uh, a, uh, a preacher in the North, who uh, uh, founded a, a very important church, Mother Bethel, in uh, in Philadelphia, collected uh, you know spirituals and uh, for his congregation to sing. So it was not just a Southern-based um, tradition; that there were there were also spirituals sung and developed in the in the North. In black churches, or were they in white churches as well, or integrated churches? Uh, black churches, mostly, and some of them began to circulate uh, into 
the uh, tent revivals where there were uh, more interracial uh, settings for, for the transmission of these songs. Now, women were generally treated as second-class citizens throughout the 19th century. Uh, does that hold true to what we see in this story? Well, the, the, the idea of the singing black woman, for, for instance, is a, a very important topic in, in black music history. First of all, uh, in the Middle Passage, uh, when uh, the enslaved were being transported across the Atlantic Ocean, if a woman could sing, it would, was, uh, according to the, uh, the ledgers of these, uh, these ships, she was seen as being uh, sexually desirable. So, she would sing to the, the the men who were working, who were rowing and doing things like that. Well, singing, too, is not exactly what it was. Uh, I, it, they were being forced to sing and dance mm -hmm. uh, as a way to, you know, exert control, number one. And number two, to, uh, quote unquote, exercise the captives so that they would be uh, healthy by the time they were they, they get over into the uh the human marketplace from the writings of the time did we get a sense that this was all just a matter of manipulating these people or were was the music that they were hearing the whites uh, was it something they appreciated well i i'm i'm sure that the music was appreciated um Sometimes, but, but we don't have we don't have many writings Sometimes. about that. Oh no 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 no! We have we have lots of writing about that. Uh, so you have in in the uh, written responses. Let's say let's be specific. The white written responses to uh, the music that they were hearing. Uh, some of it was uh, very glowing. This is the most beautiful music I've ever heard. Oh, the voices and then the rhythms are dizzying and this is, you know, amazing. And then you could have that same music be used in writing to say that these people are totally barbaric. Hmm. This is this is awful. It sounds nothing like music as we know it. And therefore, uh, these people are not white as human as uh, as white people who sing differently. So you had two different uh, responses in the historical record. Unfortunately, some of that remains an issue today. Um, were people in white churches singing songs like Wade in the Water? I think if uh, black people were present, there, as I said, if there were some interracial uh, integrated uh, uh, mostly in the non-established uh, churches, not in the mainline denominations, but in these kind of tent revival, evangelistics, uh, second awakening context, there was uh, some, uh, some repertoire that was uh, common among uh, black and white people. When did jazz, ragtime, the blues, gospel, and rhythm and blues become a major part of the American musical culture as a whole? Was that in the 20s or the 30s, or did it happen earlier? I think that the, uh, the first big, big wave of it came with the, uh, the rise of ragtime because it coincided with this, uh, the establishment of a culture industry that began to systematize how music was uh, disseminated throughout the United States. So as this sheet music culture uh, began to be big business, as the recording industry emerged and began to replace uh, sheet music as the primary means through which uh, people could experience uh, music without another human being to, you know, to actually do it. Uh, that's when these uh, different styles start uh, proliferating 
and the uh, the music industry in the early 20th century began to pick up steam. And when did northern cities like New York, Chicago, Detroit, and Philadelphia become centers of the music? Did that well, begin after the Great Migration that followed the end of World War One? Well, it depends on what you mean by uh, becoming a center. Anytime you had the establishment of recording studios, of publishing houses, and venues uh, where live music could be heard, and I'll add a fourth to the list, educational institutions like conservatories, orchestras, and uh, other uh, 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 musical institutions. That's when, uh, when all those things came together. That's when, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a city became a center. You know, uh, if you think about, uh, say, the musician Francis Johnson, an early nineteenth-century musician, who was a, a, a black trumpeter in Philadelphia. Uh, you could say that because of all of the pioneering that he was doing, his work could could be considered making Philadelphia mm-hmm. a center for black activity. But that was because he was playing in venues and uh, playing for high class balls and in museums and also traveling to Europe and getting ideas and then coming back and sharing his, the, the, his ideas with uh with other Philadelphians, you know, so as early as the, the 1830s, you could consider Philadelphia a, a kind of center for, for music. And of course, New York, I mean, throughout the 19th century, particularly with uh, the rise of, of theater and musical theater in the later half of the 19th century, it, that's when uh, things were uh, picking up for New York. And what about uh, after World War One? Because black soldiers served in uh, the military during World War One. I. I don't know how much integration there was. I don't know how much exchange of cultural ideas there was among the soldiers. Well, the, the armed services was uh, segregated until the 1940s. And um, the thing about music is that it's you can segregate bodies, but you can't segregate the airwaves. Mm-hmm. So music, when music is being heard, and when music is being sounded, you know, you can't say that only the black ears can hear it. Everybody's hearing the same music now. And some people are liking it and some people are not liking it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Sometimes 
Our guest on today's Leonard Lopez at Large is Guthrie P. Ramsey, Jr., a prize-winning music historian, pianist, and composer, professor emeritus of music at the University of Pennsylvania, and a Guggenheim Fellow, and a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. His latest book, a collection of essays he's written over the years called Who Hears Here on Black Music Pasts and Present, published by the University of California Press. And that track we just played, Professor Ramsey, was something that you recommended. Why did you choose that? Well, uh, that piece is from my latest uh, recording, my latest album anyway. I've had a couple of singles released since then. And it is an example of one of the recontextualizations of the spirituals that I talk about uh, as emerging from this uh, early uh, African-American culture. And uh, what I try to do in that piece is to reharmonize it, to make it sound more contemporary. Mm-hmm. And the uh, musical production uh, is all uh, digital because it was uh, made uh, during the pan- during the height of the pandemic. Well, you mentioned earlier that recordings were very important in spreading the music. Um, has that changed at all with the, the changes in the recording industry? Yes, it's, it has changed. It has uh, intensified greatly because of the digitization of, of music and file sharing and streaming. Uh, listeners can, for better or worse, at a very low cost or no cost, uh, hear recordings from around the world. I read the other day that about 400,000 songs a day are uploaded to Spotify, new songs. (laughs) And uh, with all of that music available, uh, people can in an instant, engage uh, musics from uh, cultures and societies that they'll never visit firsthand. And and radio has played a major role in spreading this music, although um, radio isn't as powerful as it used to be. Um, Were certain cities more likely to have radio stations that played rhythm and blues and jazz than others? Well, at first, the uh, interest was... uh, a kind of a, a fringe or a novelty, uh, you know, uh, interest. And so you would always have, uh, uh, once radio started and uh, the, the rise of these black DJs in the 30s and the 1940s, you, there were places that where you could hear it. Uh, we In New York, we had stations like WLIB and then WNJR from New Jersey uh, that that's and then the WWRL that specialized in playing popular black music and even a little jazz. And then there yeah. were the nighttime jazz shows. Indeed. And and even before that, when uh, the uh, hotels would have these uh, powerful uh, radio hookups and one could hear, say, the Duke Ellington band mm-hmm. uh, play in the Midwest if you were in New York. So... And this is what I mean about this emerging uh, culture industry is that it's been emerging since the uh, late 19th century and the changes keep uh, coming more and more rapidly. I'm interested in what's going to happen with artificial intelligence and music uh, and music performance and music recording. I think we've only begun to see, you know, what changes that might bring. In what way? Well, there was a fake song put out. Uh, I, I forget the exact context, but <clears throat> Drake, the uh, yeah. rapper Drake, Drake, uh, the best-selling rapper Drake, uh, was uh, AI was asked of well, some program was asked to create a song with him and a collaborator on a certain topic, and the song, this the AI actually uh, created the song, and it fooled a lot of people. Well, 
that upsets me a bit, but that's a whole other matter. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I think that what we're coming to is right back where we started uh, before all of the technology is that the uh, one of the most uh, I, don't, I don't like to word, use the word authentic, uh, but I, I'll say the most uh, emotionally impactful and uh, perhaps transcendent uh, use of music is when human beings share it in the same space. Well, as a kid growing up in New York, I could see my favorite performers in clubs, churches, and in theaters like the Apollo. Uh, when I was old enough to go to jazz clubs, I would go to the Village Vanguard, Blue Note, Half Note, Birdland, etc., to see jazz as well. Um, but that was always a kind of a select audience, wasn't it? Yeah, indeed. And, uh, you know, the when you look at music, this is one of the things that I find most fascinating about it, about, you know, working on music, you know, these many years, is that if you can take a snapshot of what's going on musically in the culture, you can get indicators for a lot of different larger so social uh uh, social matters by looking at music. For instance, if you uh, have a situation like uh, Duke Ellington did in uh, when he started his residency at the Cotton Club in the late 1920s, the audiences were primarily uh, audiences from outside of Harlem mm -hmm. who would uh, come and quote unquote slum in in in, uh, in the uh, uh, a segregated space where the performers were mostly black and or or black and the uh, the audiences were mostly white and that was how the society at large was working and and, and it, so it, they were segregated even in clubs in the north indeed yes hmm. yes. And so as as society changed, you started seeing these uh, the, the shape of the audiences and the constitution of audiences began to change. Uh, you know, you look at the case of Benny Goodman and Lionel Hampton, uh, where uh, he had to first put him in his uh, kind of smaller group. And there were many people who were against it, but he was he wanted Lionel Hampton to play and he insisted that he would be part of the band. And uh, it's musicians like that who make changes and then it becomes the norm. And then another musician will make a change and it becomes the norm. And, and, and that's just how the pattern has been. Hmm. And in time, there was more and more integration to the point where um, performers would often uh, work in mixed groups um, but uh, generally, uh, it was always a surprise when you saw a white pianist with a, a black vocalist. Uh, haven't, yeah. haven't you performed at the Blue Note and Harlem stage here in New York and at the Annenberg Theater of the Performing Arts and Chris's Jazz Cafe in Philadelphia? Is, was that recently? Uh, in, in recent years, yes, in the last uh, five years. Five or so years, five or six years, yeah. Have you know, jazz, not including the, the pandemic years. <laughs> have jazz clubs changed or jazz club audiences changed at all over time? Hmm. Well, that's a, a, that is a, a great question that I don't know if I'm in tune with that enough because I'm just thinking about uh, when I first started sneaking into jazz clubs <laughs> at, mm -hmm. at, uh, in, in my teen years. Mm -hmm. get a chance to play and hear these uh, great musicians in Chicago play. Uh, I'm just not quite sure if I was keenly aware of what the demographics were. I was mostly into the music, which I think is telling. Uh, and today, um, I, I really can't put my, I really can't answer that question. I, I, I don't study it. And I, I, even as from a personal perspective as a concert goer and a, uh, as a musician, I, I know that 
I can say this much that uh, jazz audiences, uh, for the most part, particularly if the, the ticket prices uh, is uh, steep, there it's mostly a white audience. Yeah. Well, that's happened in uh, other areas of of this music, um, uh, rhythm and blues, doo wop, etc went from being largely black to mixed to largely white. And I remember when I would go to a, a gospel program, and I might have been one of the only white people there initially, and then years later, uh, there'd be a lot of white people coming in. So uh, the, the, I guess the popular culture spread the news. Yeah. Uh, and again, I think these are directly related to lar- to larger forces and larger uh, social contexts. These changes in the in the music. I will say this though. I think we can uh, start thinking about how artistic audiences and artists in general are at the forefront of these changes. Hmm. That as the uh, these very important symbols of culture and these very important symbolic forms that they make, the different so- songs and the genres that have been produced, become, in a way, aspirational for the culture. It's not just reflecting the culture, but it's providing the culture with a way forward. So sound films were introduced in the late 1920s and obviously played an important role from the start. Bessie Smith made her classic St. Louis Blues in 1929. And that was not the first film of a great black artist performing. Indeed, that that very iconic uh, film, (laughs) St. Louis Blues, where she gets... uh, you know, there's a plot to that film. They, sometimes people only show the, her drinking in the in the nightclub with a, a, a choir singing. But before there's this lead up scene in that uh, film in St. Louis Blues, where she confronts her philandering uh, boyfriend uh, and uh, finds him with another woman in uh, in in uh, a hotel situation and. Uh, I, I believe he hits her and she falls to the ground in the same way that uh, Billie Holiday's first, uh, uh, you know, time we see her on film is she's getting slapped to the ground, too, uh, in a Duke Ellington film. I think it's Black, Brown and Beige. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So this is a very, very uh, culturally iconic film, St. Louis Blues. You wouldn't see too many films today in which... The, um, the the woman was slapped to the ground unless a, a real point was being made. Yeah, you would have to. I, I don't think that would get past uh, the execs. <laughs> now, you made a documentary called Amazing, The Tests and Triumph of Bud Powell, uh, which was a selection of the Black Star Film Festival in 2015. I saw Bud perform many times, but he'd been long dead um, how much footage did you actually have to work with? The footage that I did use came from a, a an experimental film uh, by uh, Leth Jurgen or Jurgen Leth. I'm mixing up his name. And he was a film student in 1963 when he met uh, Bud Powell in Europe, when he was in Europe. And uh, he found him and for some reason followed him around uh, town and you have these kind of very uh, provocative black and white shots of Bud Powell uh, wandering through, uh, through a European city and that's where I got some of it but a lot of it is uh, interviews and you know well, That grew out of the book that you wrote on him that was published a few years earlier The Amazing it, yes. Bud Powell Black Genius Jack History, and Challenge of Bebop. Why Bud, although he was one of the greatest jazz pianists of all time, but there were any number of great jazz pianists, black jazz pianists. Why Bud in particular? Well, first of all, I have to say I'm very jealous that you got to see Bud Powell. If you knew who I saw live, because I'm older than you, uh-huh. and grew up in New York, you'd be absolutely so envious 
Um, <laughs> I saw amazing. Billie Holiday perform live many times. I saw, of course, John Coltrane when he first came to town, Monk, um, Rollins, you name it. They were all here, and you could go to uh, jazz clubs. And uh, in, in one case, in fact, it was Bloney's Monk. I went to the five spot when I was 15 years old with a big stack of records under my arm. Of, and uh, Joe Tremini, the owner, was impressed that I had all those Monk records. And even though he wasn't allowed to have me in there because of drinking issues, he let me in. He said, if the cops come, you run into the men's room and lock the door. Wow. That's a great story. That's a great story. Well, it sounds like you were around the five spot with my father-in-law, uh, Amiri Baraka, Leroy Jones, and mm -hmm. Hetty Jones, and the painters, Jack Whitten, and all those people were on the Lower East Side checking out all of that great music. Oh, I knew Amiri, yes. Yeah. That's, we yeah, used to hang out uh, at the Cedar Street Bar together. Oh, my goodness. This is great. <laughs> well, it this was a, New York was a different city altogether uh and the music has changed a lot um how much have things changed now in the age of hip-hop well uh some things have changed and some things have not uh one of the things that i think has not changed is that uh in any uh large-scale genre like hip-hop your success is going to be largely um designed along your uh, your ability to have people believe that you're bringing something different to the table, something unique, something that is uh, can be readily identifiable. And I think that that is uh, something that all of the genres of black music share. When we, uh, a, a musician has reached their highest level of achievement, if you can listen to one passage and know that that's John Coltrane, or if you could hear one note and you know that has to be Aretha mm -hmm. and so on and so forth. Although and Aretha think, changed so much over the course of her life. I saw her first when she was still the daughter of a famous minister. And then when she was kind of like a middle of the road pianist. Uh, and then she went to Atlantic Records and discovered soul music and became one of the superstars. You know, discovered it or created it one of the way <laughs> you you want to think about it yeah but i think hip-hop musicians are uh still under that same pressure to create art that uh is viewed as unique and individual and i certainly find uh you know hip-hop artists uh like that all the time and uh it's a very rich rich uh field well, I'm going to write a, now give a little bio of you. Guthrie P. Ramsey Jr. Uh, the book we've been discussing is Who Hears Here on Black Music Past and Present from the University of California Press. He's an award-winning musicologist, music historian, composer, pianist, leader of the band Dr. Guy's Musicology, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a professor emeritus of music at the University of Pennsylvania. He's released five recording projects, performed at venues like the Blue Note, uh, and uh, he uh, and, and other places all over the world, and the author of Race Music, Black Cultures from Bebop to Hip-Hop, The Amazing Bud Powell, Black Genius, Jazz History, and The Challenge of Bebop. Have I left anything out? Uh, I think that's enough. <laughs> I think you've, you've about said it all. And I thank you so much for being on our show today. It's been a lot of fun talking with you. What a pleasure. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our show. If you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more about one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access our over 500 past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. Our podcast, which has surpassed 1 million plays, available on iTunes, Apple, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to write to me, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off today, I need to ask you to support WBAI 
Right now, we are going through a serious economic crisis, and um, programming is going to reflect that. We're not going to be on the air as much in the near future as we are right now because um, fundraising is just going to have to take over and also saving money on, on staff and, and the like. So uh, we, if you want us to keep this show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. and this station coming to you, we're asking everyone who has the means to do so to make a contribution of whatever level they're comfortable with by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org right now. That's 212-209-2950 or give and the number 2 WBAI.org because we need you help to keep bringing this unique in-depth content information you usually don't get anywhere else so why not make that call right now again 212-209-2950 go online to give to wbai.org or you might also consider becoming a sustaining member what we call a bai buddy for 10 15 20 25 dollars however much you can afford a month and that allows us to plan for the future and we'll say thank you with a bai tote bag to anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But please do it right now. We are the only radio station in the New York Dial that's 100% listener-sponsored, and your support will be tax-deductible. And we hope you can join us again tomorrow when my guests, Patricia Ventura and Edward K. Chan, will discuss their new book, White Power and American Neoliberal Culture. We'll see you then. 